Hi, everyone. I'm Samira Daswani, the host of the Patient from Hell podcast. We are brought to you by Manta Cares, a global community of caregivers and survivors of cancer. We create tools and resources to help anyone going through the cancer experience navigate it better, feel more in control, and get peace of mind. We've been doing this podcast now for the last sort of half, half year of 2022, and today it is my utmost pleasure to have Karen Young from the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition join us. She has been a supporter of Mantacare from the very beginning. She has given us enormous amounts of guidance, and I am honestly thrilled and honored to call her a friend and a mentor and a guide. So Karen, thank you for joining us today. Samira, thank you for having me. It's my honor to be with you. Karen, if I remember right, you've been with NOCC for 11 years. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I started here in 2011. How did you end up at NOCC? Why NOCC? What has kept you here? I'd, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your journey with our listeners. Sure, sure. So, um, so I've been a nonprofit for more than 35 years. So I've worn a lot of different hats, worked with a lot of different organizations. Um, but uh, back in 2010, I was working with a, a speech and hearing clinic and they lost the funding for my position. And so I found myself out of a job for the first time ever in my life since I was 16. And while I was looking for a job, <clears throat> um, uh, this this job that was cancer related came up that just kind of kept speaking to me because my mom is a, a colon cancer survivor. And so being one of her primary caregivers and going through that experience um, just really gravitated towards wanting to work with a cancer organization. And I knew nothing about ovarian cancer, but it was my mom was the reason why it interests me. And um, so, yeah, so I applied and, and uh, started working here part-time. And then um, I was still raising my kids at the time. And so I was very part-time for a number of years. But now, 11 years later, I'm still here with the ovarian cancer community. Uh, Karen, can you talk to our listeners about a little bit about who NOCC is, what they do, why the focus on ovarian cancer the month of September, the meaning behind it. Sorry, I'm just throwing out ideas at you now. Sure, sure. So love to. So the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition is a national 501c3, and uh, we're based in Dallas. Um, this organization has been around for 30 years. It actually started down in Boca Raton, Florida. Um, a woman by the name of Gail, um, who was a survivor, started this grassroots around her kitchen table. And uh, after a few years, um, after she passed, the headquarters moved to Dallas, Texas. And so we um, had a chapter model for many years uh, with chapters scattered throughout the country. And so for the first 10 years of me being here, I was overseeing the Illinois chapter. I'm based in Chicago proper, live not too far from Midway Airport, um, and uh, had an office in the West Loop for 10 years. And so my my uh, general region area to oversee was just the state of Illinois. Um, but during the pandemic, we kind of merged into a, a regional model. And so now I'm actually overseeing the Midwest region and have five additional states um, that I also oversee in addition to Illinois. And so the, the NOCC was set up because Gail, being a survivor herself, late stage, which very often women are diagnosed late stage, and we can talk a bit more about why that is later, um, but really wanted to get the awareness out in the community, knowing that this is a very deadly disease for women. It's very difficult to detect. 
Uh, most women are diagnosed late stage three or four. And so she wanted to be able to get out there in the community and let others know about the symptoms um, so that other women wouldn't have to go through, you know, what it was that she was dealing with, what she and her family had to go through. So that's really how things got started um, in the very beginning. We were a very awareness focused organization. That was a huge part of our mission. And our mission has morphed and changed over the years based on the needs of our constituents. And Karen, if you had to sort of uh, double click on the needs of the constituents today, so in 2022, 30 years after the founding of NOCC, we've gone from awareness. What does NOCC focus on today? What are the needs of that community? How do you find out about those needs? Uh, we'd love to learn a little bit more about how the ovarian cancer community sort of coalesces and helps support each other. Yeah, so um, so the NOCC community is made up of survivors, family members, medical professionals um, that all come together really to identify and figure out what are the most needful programs and services. During the pandemic, you know, the pandemic pushed a lot of nonprofits, including us, you know, out of our comfort zone to reinvent ourselves, to go virtual with everything and everything that we do. And um, the simple fact is we were starting to identify some of the most basic needs and um, so awareness is important. Awareness, it's important for us to get out in the community to make the public know about the symptoms because a lot of people don't know it's a lesser known cancer because the symptoms are vague. And so that is still a huge part of our mission. But, you know, our mission has four pillars. We have the awareness piece. We have quality of life for our survivors and caregivers, um, research and then community events, how we all come together to do this work. And we were really finding that um, just basic needed services like food, counseling, financial assistance, things that we had never really delved into. We thought about plans maybe someday just really pushed us in that direction. And they became some of the most important things over the last couple of years that we've provided. Um, because <clears throat> for any cancer patient going through cancer treatment, we know how difficult that can be. So getting proper nutrition, not feeling like cooking. Some people have assistance. Some people have in-home caregiving. Others, you know, they have friends, family that might come over. But just finding ways to help, the, you know, ease that burden. Um, definitely in all my years that I've been here, when women would call and say that they were just diagnosed with ovarian cancer and are there any financial resources, not only did we not have financial assistance, but there wasn't much in the community. And mm -hmm. so really proud to say that now we actually do have two financial assistance programs, once again, bore out of the pandemic. And mm -hmm. so being able to get some, some wonderful funding to underwrite these programs so that yeah. they can be free. Um, now we do have women across the country from coast to coast who are actually taking advantage of these programs. And just that little bit, you know, the financial toxicity of going through a cancer diagnosis is great. And so it, it's not much, but that little bit that we can do to help maybe to get over to the next yeah. month, you know, or you take one thing off of their plate and then being able to introduce free counseling too. I mean, this takes a toll on us, you know, psychosocially. So if people are, are needing to talk with someone one-on-one, -on -one. but one of the biggest things that women find through our organization is the camaraderie of other survivors, the online support groups we have, being able to network with others, realizing you're not going through this alone. Some women never until they come to one of our events have never met another ovarian cancer survivor. So of course they wow. do feel alone. They do feel like they're going through this alone. And some have very supportive families and, and others may not. And so our... Um, ability to bring women together in a space where they feel safe and comfortable 
to talk about all the issues that they have dealing with their cancer is really, really important and crucial for them. So we have found that, you know, over the last couple of years, these services have grown in use and are some of the most valuable things that we do have to fill in the gaps for these women's lives. Thank you for sharing that. I, as you, you of course know, I'm a breast cancer survivor and mm-hmm. the breast cancer community, I do think over the last sort of many, many decades has grown quite a bit and there's a lot of advocacy around it and a lot of support groups. Hearing you say that in the ovarian cancer community, until someone comes to an NOCC event, they've not met another survivor. Is It, it really resonates with me because without access to that community, I, I don't know what I would have done. And to hear you say that, I think it just compounds the value and impact that NOCC probably has on all of these lives. Oh, for sure. And, you know, it's very interesting. You know, when I first started working here, like I said, I didn't know anything about ovarian cancer. Most women don't know much about their ovaries, (laughs) except for what they're there for, you know, and that when you get to a certain age, if you're going to go through menopause, have a hysterectomy, we have some familiarity with that. But there's so much about our bodies inside that we just don't know about until something goes wrong, right? So the simple fact that we try to be a good educational resource, um, not only for the general public, just to make people aware of the signs and symptoms so they can be aware, but also the educational materials that we have. We have um, what's called a, a Faces of Hope tote that we give to women after they've been discharged from the hospital. It's a nice tote bag. Uh, teal and brown. Teal is our color uh, for awareness for ovarian cancer. Um, comfy teal blanket, but there's a newly diagnosed guide in there and also some wonderful pamphlets that our medical and science advisory board oversees. Um, this information that we get into the survivor's hand that's going to kind of step through, you know, you've been able to talk with your doctor and just like so much information uh, is swimming around in your head, which of course, you know, this area because of your Manta planner and what you went through just to try and like keep track of stuff for your own doctor appointments. So the simple fact that you've got so much apprehension and you're just so scared about what's next, what is it like to go through chemo? I have questions. Am I going to lose my hair? Am I going to be sick? How am I going to work? You know, how am I going to deal with managing all these multiple things? You're just very um, afraid about the unknown. And so we try to be able to prepare with our materials for the patient themselves and also her support network. You know, we have a couple of brochures like when your loved one has ovarian cancer or um, sexual intimacy, you know, things that are going to help them answer some questions, bring up some questions they didn't even know that they needed to think about. And, and so we're very, um, very pleased to be able to offer these types of educational materials that are going to be really crucial. We have another um, thing that bore out of the pandemic, uh, something called the animated patient guide. It's uh, it lives on YouTube and we are working on modules four and five, um, but the first three are finished and have been live uh, this past year. It's basically modules that identify uh, what is ovarian cancer, how is it diagnosed, and how is it treated, and then the next two modules are about clinical trials and genetics. And then once they're um, all finished, we'll be translating all five modules into Spanish. So this is going to be a really great tool out there on YouTube for folks to be able to educate themselves, refer to others, and um, very well put together uh, with a, an organization called You. It's So like our site is You and Ovarian Cancer, but there's like You and Prostate Cancer, You and Breast Cancer. So we are the premier ovarian cancer on this website. 
So, um, so yeah, pretty, pretty proud of this effort. And it's just uh, another way for us to get out there in the community and just really make people know about something that is just not very well known at all. One of the things you said that I think is actually worth us talking about is the signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer. I've heard you say it a couple of times now that people don't know what to look for. They don't know when it is quote unquote bad enough and you really need to push for uh, more testing or imaging or whatnot. I'd love to learn a little bit more from you on that. Sure. So this is a this is an area that, um, like I said, I came to this organization knowing nothing about my own body and about ovarian cancer. I also didn't know at the time that ovarian cancer is genetically connected to colon cancer, which made that so much more meaningful me to me since my mom is a colon cancer survivor. And so um, understanding, you know, it took a few years for me to wrap my brain around how I wanted to communicate this to the public. Um, and I just came off the heels of a, of a three-day expo at McCormick Place here in Chicago, um, you know, constantly talking with women. And it's funny, um, the, the myths that we have to dispel, because like women, you know, if you're pretty proactive about your health, you're like, okay, I'm going to go get all my tests. You know, I need to get a mammogram. I need to get a colonoscopy. I need to get my pap. So like all the things that we're told that we need to do. And so we just automatically assume everything's covered. Well, probably the thing that most women, myself included, did not know is that when you get your annual pap smear, that detects cervical cancer. That doesn't detect ovarian cancer. So women feel like, oh, I'm covered. I get my pap. So they can easily like walk by my booth and say, oh, I'm covered. I go get my annual every year. I'm like, no, 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 no. Come back here because I need to let you know that is not how ovarian cancer is detected. In fact, the reason why the rate um, is so high for diagnosis late stage is because there is no reliable early detection test at all. Hasn't been in years. They're still working on trying to find one. And even though there are tests that you can get if you suspect, like let's say you have symptoms and you go and talk to your general doctor or even your gynecologist, and you suspect that maybe you have ovarian cancer, there are some things that they can do to verify whether you do or not, but they are not reliable enough to become an early detection test that they would recommend for us annually every year. So in the absence of that, with the symptoms being very vague, and the top four that most women report when they um, are diagnosed is, um, of course, pelvic pain, you know, stomach, mm -hmm. pelvic pain. So you're going to have pain in that area. Um, mm -hmm. Bloating. Uh, what woman doesn't feel bloated on any given month? <laughs> and uh, so bloating. But bloating usually will be like like a 60-year-old woman looks like she's eight months pregnant. Like we're talking like really serious bloating. Oh, wow. And I can explain why in a minute. Um, also feeling full when you haven't eaten very much, like you just eat a little and you're feeling full or having to run to the bathroom all the time. Now, all four of those that I just mentioned, how often have we thought that we've had those? They come and go. Um, they're vague. Like why would I think ovarian cancer? And some of the symptoms that women report also can mimic symptoms for like irritable bowel syndrome. And so very often women are misdiagnosed first as an IBS type of um, symptom. Mm. When it realis realistically, it's because there is fluid built up, there's a tumor inside yeah. growing, pushing organs around that actually, and those symptoms are things that are really easy to blow off because they mm. seem benign to you. It'll just go away. I'm uncomfortable today. Mm. I'll take some Tylenol, ibuprofen, I'll be good. We'll push through it, right? We're working women, we're raising children, we've got lives to live, and we can't let a little thing like this little symptom here or there. So we tell people all the time, if it's not normal for you to have these things, 
and they come on all of a sudden and they just persist and they don't go away, really just be a good advocate for yourself and go check them out. Just go see if it might be something more serious. But see that the thing is when we encourage women to advocate for themselves and then you go and you expect the medical professional to tell you what you need to know and the medical professional doesn't have ovarian cancer in their mind, there's the problem. So you can get referred to this specialist, that specialist, and how many people do you see before they finally diagnose you? While that whole time, your symptoms are getting worse, your tumor is growing, women end up being diagnosed late stage. So the whole cocktail of the things that we don't have to help identify things early is why we have so many women with stage four ovarian cancer. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, just in this dialogue, have learned so much, Karen. I definitely did not realize how almost non-specific the symptoms are. Mm-hmm. Where it's it's unlike breast cancer, where you you should be doing breast exams. There is sort of a cadence for it. There's a screening protocol for it. It doesn't sound like there's sort of an analogy for ovarian cancer right now. No, and you know what we've really jumped on board the last few years um, within our animated patient guide with the materials that we awareness materials that we have is really talking about family history of your cancer, Mm -hmm. the genetic connection between cancers so that people can be proactive. Any woman can get of any age can get ovarian cancer at any time. You don't have to have a family genetic connection, but if you do have connection to your family, especially I just mentioned before, Colon cancer is genetically related, breast cancer, genetically related, prostate cancer. So either from your mother or father's side of your family, if you've got a mom that had breast cancer and a dad that Mm -hmm. had colon cancer and an aunt that had ovarian cancer, you should have that on your radar. And if you do have some symptoms, hopefully families are going to talk to each other. So you're going to have some familiarity should you start to feel that way. But if people are testing positive for BRCA mutations, that also means that you can get genetic testing you can talk with your doctor and have it noted in your files so you can be more proactive. So at least knowing your family's cancer history, and we have a symptom diary that we're coming out with this year that should really help you track those things and go in and have a more informed conversation with your doctor. So the symptoms don't sound like they're coming out of nowhere. You're trying to put those puzzle pieces together to help your doctor help you in a better way and get to that diagnosis quicker instead of the meandering around with other things that it might be. You can actually hop straight to that faster and hopefully get diagnosed in a much earlier stage if that is your situation. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that is incredibly powerful. Can you talk a little bit about CA-125? Yeah, CA-125. So um, there's a lot of controversy around whether or not CA-125 is a good biomarker, not should you get scared about it. Women have anxiety like crazy every time they're going to go in and get, whether it's their PET scan or it's their blood test. And so a CA-125 um, is a good baseline biomarker for women to know like what is normal for you. Um, The normal range, and I I don't remember the exact number, but let's say it's supposed to be like an eight, like, you know, a good number for a CA125 is an eight. When women first find out that they have ovarian cancer, they might be in the 200s, they might be in the thousands, they might be in the 20,000s. I mean, I've had, had women talk about numbers all over the place and that scares them because they know that number's supposed to be low. Just like people that I have, my husband is diabetic and so I hear him talk about his blood sugar, his glucose number all the time. And that needs to be in a certain range and we know that it's important to try and keep that number in that range. And you don't have any control when you have cancer over you know, um, over that number, but, but people have such anxiety about it. 
and, and talk so often about it and fear going in to get their next blood test to see where their levels are. But doctors will tell patients that's individual for you, just like a lot of things are. And if, if, if a baseline for you is at 100 and they don't see evidence of your cancer growing, um, then that's a good baseline because if it starts to go up, and then they do, you know, it's all relative, you know? And so they're always wanting to get that number down. It's always good to get the number down, but there's so much controversy about whether or not that is a really true good marker or not, but it definitely produces a lot of anxiety within the ovarian cancer community. I mean, we talk about it on support calls all the time. And, it, and it's still, like you said, it's, it's not perfect. It's something there, it's a tool that can be used, but that's why it can't be used as an early detection test because it is not reliable enough there's going to be too many false positives and negatives with that number to say what range tells you that you actually have cancer if they use that as an early detection test. It just it just doesn't work. So huh. I am super super glad you you brought that up because it's one thing that comes out. So I know I know it's controversial in the ovarian cancer community, but it's also getting controversial in the breast cancer community. And it's one of those things I think to your previous point that there seems to now be lots of evidence on the genetic. Uh, relationships between the different types of cancers, the familial histories there, and then whether or not CA125 needs to be in a survivorship plan for a breast cancer patient. Mm -hmm. And it, it's now infiltrating different parts of the uh, pan-cancer community as well. And I find it, um, I think to your point, it took me a bit of digging to realize that it was causing me mostly anxiety and was mm -hmm. not likely going to help me at all. Right. And this is breast cancer, not not ovarian cancer, but I think sort of a similar analogy to what I'm hearing you say in yeah. terms of the bluntness of the tool and the kind of misappropriation of misuse almost of the tool. Because it's not really an early detection. It could be helpful in a specific case to show specific deviations from a baseline. Right. So it almost sounds like a tool that needs to be used rather carefully for it to actually be helpful in a specific case. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes um, I, I run two online uh, support groups, one for women of any stage of ovarian cancer, and then we have an advanced group for women who are stage 3C and 4. And in that advanced group, you know, there's more conversation about the CA125. And some women, you know, it's it's different. Just like people, everyone grieves differently. Well, everyone deals with their cancer diagnosed differently. Some people want to know all the details, like, tell me everything. I need to know everything. I'm going to research everything. Some would rather kind of not know. And if you've got that kind of trusting relationship with your doctor. I've had women that said, I never know what my CA125 is. My doctor knows. My doctor's mm -hmm. monitoring it. If he or she thinks that there's something that we need to talk about, they'll bring it up to me. But they have found that that's how they ease their anxiety about it because they're not going to worry about what it is every single time they go in. They're just going to let their doctor. And see, that's why it's so important we talk about the trust and the relationship that we have with our medical professional. You know, whether or not you can really feel comfortable that you're getting the best care and they are going to guide you and, and tell you what you need to know. And if it's really not important at this time, then don't bother me with those details. I can sleep better at night if I don't know. I, I, think like that. I think that's really profound because I think the flip is also true. And it's also about understanding where you as an individual are and you as a like family care team are on that. Because I'd imagine that even within a family dynamic, you might have the patient who's like, I don't really want to know. And then a family or friend who's playing a caregiver role really wants to know. Right. Because their way of calming down anxiety or understanding it is really getting the weeds of it. So mm -hmm. I can imagine that there's a lot of personalization on 
how how you need to feel in control of your life mm-hmm. starts to manifest differently. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we we're on the in the Mantakaya community are also sort of grappling with because with the planner, we see people use it differently. <laughs> some people want every single sure. page filled out, and some are like, oh, I don't want to deal with that side. I just want this section of it. And right. It it does manifest differently, and it's quite. Uh, I think it speaks to the need for continuous personalization in cancer. Correct. I agree. Yeah. So Karen, I want to change uh, the the thread a little bit. And if you don't mind, focus a little bit more on your personal transformation and journey, because I know you've gone through a whole transformation yourself in the last two years. So if you're comfortable uh, sharing a little bit about that, what, what sort of uh, triggered it? What have you learned about yourself through it? I found uh, when you shared it with me, I thought it was one of the more inspirational stories. You hear a lot of inspirational stories in oncology, but knowing knowing you and if you're comfortable, I'd love for you to share that uh, transformation too. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, over the last, um, well, let's just say pre-pandemic, um, I had been with this organization for um, seven or eight years, and I had a, another person working with me. So we, we ran the chapter together, and we had been together for seven years. And then she left the organization back in 2020. And so, um, and then we moved into this regional model. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you know, just the enormity of, of, having so many more people exponentially reaching out to us for these wonderful services that we now had as well. And um, so it, w- it was a bit overwhelming. And, you know, I, I was working in an office in the West Loop downtown. I moved home. Now I work out of my home and I had never done that before. And there's pros and cons to both. You know, I mean, I, I, I do love working from home, but it is a lot more difficult to plan out your day and really focus sometimes uh, depending upon whatever is going on at home. I'm sure that we're all dealing with that these days. But um, I do think that over the last few years, I have really, I have really depended upon my my volunteer community. Um, I have a heavy background in volunteer management and I have lots of really fabulous survivors and those who are connected through their family, um, having a loved one with ovarian cancer that are all volunteers of mine that I would not be able to do the work that we do here without them. And so um, personally, I think that some of the hardest times that I've ever had in nonprofit work in my entire <laughs> lifetime really has been here in the last couple of years. And I've really had to, to really, you know, I, I love, um, I actually love the whole process of onboarding volunteers, training them. And, and I, and I say that I'm really great at delegating projects to them and asking them to take on, you know, really important pieces of the work that we do. Um, but I'm also kind of, you know, mother hennish about it, you know, and I, I actually sometimes have a hard time letting go. So I think it's been a, it's been a real, um, eye-opening experience the last couple of years to see how we can grow the work of the chapter. And not only just here in Illinois, so I have a really great group of ladies in Indiana that I've been working with for three years who are growing into a market of their own um, and doing some great work, getting out there in the community, spreading awareness. Um, They'll be tying teal ribbons in a bunch of their towns in Indiana during the month of September. And so I think just really um, 
pushing myself in another direction to be able to let go of a lot of things that I am responsible for, to let my volunteers take on meaty chunks of it, because um, it's it's a lot. There's there's a lot going on within this organization. We've been growing leaps and bounds, and it's been really hard to play catch up. And I actually, last year, um, my mother was in the hospital with a bowel blockage during the month of August, right before we headed into our month of September. I was moving out of the office, moving home. It was probably one of the most stressful times that I've ever had here. And I really felt I was drowning. I really was. I was just completely drowning for a few months. And it took a while for me to just kind of regroup. You know, when you've spent time over years building something up, it's really hard to let things go and to really just, you know, use your skills at prioritizing and figure out like, okay, I can't do everything. Which of these things am I going to forward on to other folks? Which of these things are we just going to let lay fallow for a while? Because we can only do so much, you know? So just the stress management of work-life balance um, really kind of came to a head last year. And I think that I'm doing much better with it now <laughs> this year, I hope. Um, so, yeah. How did you go from that moment of like almost burnout to regaining balance? What was that like for you? What did you use? What were the tools you used? Um, well, family supports. Um, I, my husband's wonderful. Um, you know, even though we don't see each other, <laughs> he works nights, I work days, so we don't see each other a lot, but we're really good sounding boards for each other. Um, I have a two and a half year old grandson, love of my life. That is uh, really great for stress relief. Um, that's my first grandchild. I've got my second grandchild on the way in October. So um, I think being able to, the nice thing about being at home and my grandson, my, my son and daughter-in-law and my grandson actually lived with us for a year. So we were on top of each other. That was part of the stress, but just having him here on a daily basis to be able to kind of check out. But also we have a very um, supportive relationship with um, us regional managers in different parts of the country. We really do rely on each other because unless you actually know what it's like to spend so much time with your survivors and going through the mental, the emotional stuff that, you know, you're helping people maneuver and navigate. Um, you can't help but take that on yourself as well. Um, I go out and walk every day. I have to be in nature. Um, I have to get out in the outdoors. Treadmill doesn't do it for me. I have an elliptical, but I have to be outside connecting with nature, step away from stuff. That helps me, be, you know, be more focused and de-stress as well. Karen, thank you for sharing that. I think your theme on caring for yourself, caring for others is a theme that is coming up more and more the longer we, we do our work. Yeah. Because it's almost like the individuals that care for patients, survivors, including the family and loved ones, and they themselves sort of take on so much of the burden. And a lot right. of times it's not recognized. And just hearing your story, both in terms of you caring for your mom, but also you caring for this community for 11 years and you sort of dedicating your life to building and growing the community. And I know I felt that and I'm not even formally NOCC. Uh, it, it, I think goes a long way, but I appreciate you sharing your perspectives on you needing to care for yourself. They, for you ne needing to have family support, you need to have that kind of stress release coming from your grandson. Yes. The need to walk outside in nature, the need to work out either through walking or an elliptical and really building out that notion of balance. Um, 
I do think that that alone goes a long way for at least our community. So thank you for sharing that. Today's podcast has been phenomenal because we have really gone into the weeds on ovarian cancer. We heard you talk about the signs and symptoms, what women should be looking out for, but sadly are not specific to ovarian cancer necessarily, but they should still be aware of it. We've spoken about the need or the reasons behind uh, testing and talking to your clinician when you do see signs and symptoms, because the testing itself may not be sort of conclusive, sadly, in the ovarian cancer space. Uh, we've spoken about the need for community and survivorship communities in particular for ovarian cancer, because it is still at a relatively nascent stage compared to other types of breast cancer, prostate cancer, et cetera, where right. finding community is still sadly not easy. Uh, the need for resources along that kind of spectrum of care, everything from financial assistance, post-hospital tote bags, and needing to sort of grapple with nutrition and logistics and your loved one, et cetera. We've spoken about kind of the growing impact of NOCC and how it's transformed with models over the last 30 years. It started out predominantly with awareness, but now it's doing so much more. And then lastly, we spoke about caring for yourself while you care for someone else, which I think is incredibly profound. So that's sort of the themes that I picked up while listening to you today. Is there anything as a last minute thought, a question I should have asked you that I didn't ask that you want to share with everyone? Um, no, I think we covered everything really well. I think the one thing that I would just want to reiterate and emphasize is that in, in our growth over the last couple of years, we really have tried to focus as much on the caregiver and the support network of our um, women as well as, as them themselves. Um, and we do have a caregiver group that's also virtual too. So if people go, we, we redesigned our website and there's lots of really great information there for both the patient track and the caregiver track. And I do encourage people, if they are in the ovarian community, to check it out. Um, there's lots of really great things that you can take of, you know, advantage of virtual. We're gonna have a hybrid model now. We're just, you know, tiptoeing back into uh, in-person events. I have a big walk coming up in October locally here and we have walks across the country. Um, but I, I do think that our resources on our website um, are really robust and that people should check them out if they are part of this community. I think that you'll find things that will be helpful there. Thank you for sharing that. We will make sure to link to that in our show notes as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been my utmost pleasure. And this has, of course, been a phenomenal conversation as per normal with you. So thank you so much. Well, I love any time that I can chat with you, Samira. It's always wonderful. Thank you. This podcast, show notes, and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.